Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Sean. And we are Movie, movie Geek, Geek and, and Proud. Proud, a movie podcast where two gay movie geeks review current and older movies of all genres, good and bad. We also pick titles and share our opinions on films that are either not well-known or guilty pleasures. But we are proud of our taste and encourage all other movie geeks to do the same. And it's not just movie reviews on our show. We play games, trivia, movie drafts. We have guests come on and even the occasional skit. (laughs) You can listen to our show on your favorite podcast apps, including SoundCloud, Podbean, and iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at MGNP Podcast. And remember, every movie has at least one fan. You're so cheesy. What? How's that cheesy? And every movie does not have at least one fan. Uh, I say it does, and you can't prove it doesn't. You can't prove it does. Yes, I can. That's why we're doing this show. It's like every time you want to start with me, I don't understand. No, you yes, can't. You so can. I'm no, telling you, they ridiculous. always have to do. You always do this. Movie Geek and Proud, a new episode every Wednesday. Boston, March 18th, 1990. Despite its location in one of Boston's busiest districts, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, situated at 25 Evans Way, was somewhat removed from the hustle of the surrounding Fenway-Kenmore area. The palatial villa at the edge of the marshes sat regal, yet inviting, as both a museum dedicated to the public and the former retreat of one of Boston's most eccentric and beloved socialites. At 1 a.m., the Gardner Museum was mostly quiet, save for the night watchman's patrol. Security guard Richard Abbott completed his switch with a fellow guard, went to double-check the front gate, and returned to his position at the front of the museum. At around 1.25 a.m., the buzzer to the front door rang. Not a normal occurrence at this time of night. Justifiably concerned, Abbott answered the buzzer and saw two police officers on the security monitor. The police urged Abbott to let them inside as they had been summoned after a disturbance in the courtyard. Breaching security protocol, the perplexed night watchman assumed the officers were in the right and buzzed the gentlemen inside. When the officers approached Abbott's desk, one of the men recognized Abbott and asked him to step out from behind the desk, claiming that the guard resembled a person of interest with a standing arrest warrant. Confused and no doubt annoyed, Abbott was asked to produce his ID and then to turn and face the wall. Before he could protest, Abbott then noticed there was something off about the policeman. He was wearing a wax mustache. And if Abbott had been paying closer attention to the perimeter that night, he may have noticed a red Dodge Daytona, and not a police car, pulling up to the side of the Gardner Museum an hour earlier, the occupants of the car scouting the security and waiting for the right moment to strike. Before Abbott could reach for the alarm, the fake officers handcuffed the security guard and got the jump on Abbott's partner as he arrived to investigate the disturbance. The two officers then explained the obvious. They were not the police at all. They were here to rob the museum. The thieves led the guards down to the museum basement, handcuffed them to the exposed pipes, and then wrapped their victims' hands, feet, and head in duct tape. In total, the heist took 81 minutes. As the thieves left, 
they went down to the basement and gave Abbott and his partner a cryptic warning. You'll be hearing from us in about a year. It was an odd choice of phrase, and a promise unfulfilled, because the thieves were never heard from again, and their identities remain unknown. So too is the fate of 13 pieces of art, with an estimated value of $500 million. Among the lost works, the concert, one of 34 Vermeer paintings in existence, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the only known seascape to have been painted by Rembrandt. Also taken were a self-portrait by the aforementioned artist, two Degas, a 12th century BC Chinese ritual vase, and a bronze ornamental eagle that sat atop one of Napoleon's flags. And if only this latter piece were to ever be recovered, it would earn the finder a reward of $100,000. The bewildered and embarrassed security guards remained handcuffed until police arrived at 8.15 a.m. later that morning, and so kicked off the hunt for those behind the single largest property theft in the world. It is a case that remains unsolved, with a cast of highly unusual suspects and an intricate network of leads, all tying back to almost every major criminal organization operating out of New England. My name is Maxwell. This season on Relic, Crimes and Curses. Isabella Stewart was born in New York City on April 14, 1840. Better than being born in New York City, she was also born into extreme wealth, which helps when you go on to lead a life as a sassy traveling heiress who buys expensive paintings from people. Stewart's family instilled in her a love of art and travel from an early age. She moved to Paris at 16, a scientifically proven method of making yourself cool forever, and it is here at a girls' academy that she met her new best friends and classmates, the daughters of the equally wealthy Gardner family of Boston. From there, Isabella Stewart hopped from France to Italy and fell in love with Gian Giacomo Poldi Pezzoli's Renaissance Art Museum, which was designed to resemble the various eras showcased in its art collection. Isabella loved the idea and decided, you know what? We really need an American version of this. Since she was from that long dead line of cool rich people who actually use their wealth for the greater good, she swore to her friends and family that if she ever made it big on her own dime, which back then was all about marrying right, she would open up a similar museum for the enjoyment and education of the public. And spoilers, she did. After coming back to America, Isabella was invited up to Boston by her best friend and classmate Julia Gardner. She then proceeded to fall madly in love with her best friend's brother, John Lowell, a.k.a. Jack, who was, according to Wikipedia, that is, one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. She then husbanded him up in due time, and her father-in-law bestowed her with a wedding gift, a brand new house. 
Unfortunately, Isabella's life was not entirely without tragedy. She lost her son, John Lowell III, to pneumonia before his third birthday. Only a year later, Isabella lost another child to miscarriage, and was then informed that she would be unable to give birth to another should she have chosen to do so. Julia, her best friend and the reason for Isabella and Jack meeting, also died around this time. Understandably, Isabella developed an acute form of depression and sequestered herself in her mansion. To cheer her up, and on the advice of her doctors, Jack tried to channel his wife's love of travel and brought her on a whirlwind tour of Europe, including Scandinavia, Russia, and Paris, where Isabella had spent the better part of her youth. During her travels, Isabella kept notebooks and keepsakes from her various journeys, and she found her mental health drastically improving. She and her husband also began to collect artwork, both new and old, from all over Europe, slowly amassing an impressive collection. Most of this artwork was purchased by Isabella on her own, which was uncommon at the time because of that, you know, being a woman thing. She would often slyly send her male colleagues and business partners to coordinate acquisitions in her name and then hand them over to her. In many ways, Isabella was the one calling the shots and making the big decisions, and by all accounts, she and Jack had a very equitable marriage. Eventually, Jack and Isabella realized that their already large house was not going to be able to sustain all of these priceless works of art, so they considered purchasing a larger space specifically as a hybrid residence and museum. Sadly, Jack died in 1898. But instead of falling back into depression, Isabella decided to realize her and her husband's life dream and purchased a plot of land near Boston's Fenway Park. In time, this multi-story palace, with a glass-covered courtyard, soon housed some of the greatest works of art from the last millennium. And on New Year's Day, 1903, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum opened its doors to the public with a fantastic ceremony, including music from the Boston Symphony Orchestra and hors d'oeuvres of champagne and donuts. Because of course, that's awesome. For Isabella, bucking convention was par for the course. She was widely known as sort of the Lady Gaga of her time, being somewhat of a wealthy bohemian who was known for her eccentric but affable behavior, such as her widely known love of baseball. In fact, when one of her more infamous appearances, she arrived at the Boston Symphony Orchestra wearing a white headband cheering on her favorite team. It said, Oh, you Red Sox. Allegedly, the affair almost caused a panic among the well-to-do. Gardner lived on the fourth floor of the museum until her death in 1924 at the age of 84. In addition to living large and weird during her life, she instituted several unusual, but of course fantastic, rules upon her death. First, her will granted $1 million to the museum and ordered that the collection should never be significantly altered in any way. She also donated large sums to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, Animal Rescue League of Boston, and the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. One of her many rules you can still take advantage of to this day, provided, of course, that your name is, as my own sister gleefully found out, Isabella. If you can provide valid ID, you are guaranteed free admission to the museum for the rest of your life. And sorry, Isabels, your name won't cut it. But back to the crime. Not too long after the heist, the FBI was called in to help and locate the missing paintings, 
Quick fact about U.S. law enforcement. The FBI will take jurisdiction for all cases that potentially involve or do involve crimes committed across state lines. From the get-go, however, this case was already proving to be stranger than it initially appeared. The museum was equipped with motion detectors that recorded time signatures whenever they were activated. The blue room, where Manet's Chez Tortini was stolen, recorded motion at 12.27am and 12.53am, which was before the theft occurred, according to the security guard, Abbas. These timestamps, he said, coincided with his normal patrol route through that room. The painting's frame was also discovered sitting on security chief Lyle W. Grindle's chair by the front desk. Naturally, this seems suspicious, until you take into account that all security personnel involved that night had, shall we say, their hands tied. Per my research, no watchmen from that night have ever been considered persons of interest in the case. Though an official art crime team was not established by the FBI until 2004, the Gardner Museum investigation cast a wide net, involving international law enforcement agencies such as Scotland Yard. Black market art dealings are, of course, global affairs, with shady private collectors paying sometimes millions to get their hands on famous pieces. Eventually, the FBI concluded that the paintings were most likely still on U.S. soil, and localized to the Mid-Atlantic and New England. They may have been moved in secret through my home state of Connecticut, particularly the capital city of Hartford, and I'll speak more on that later. In 2000, it was believed that an offer for the storm on the Sea of Galilee had occurred in Philadelphia, but leads dropped off after this occurrence, much of which is still shrouded in the investigation. There has also been frequent criticism over the FBI taking charge of the case, as local police officials had far better knowledge of area gangs and mafia ties, including, most helpfully, informants. But even with the resources available, trying to unpack the motives and identities involved in the Gardner heist only leads oneself further down the rabbit hole. Let's dissect. Most art crime specialists will tell you that heists, by their delicate nature, require careful planning and a laser focus on one or more particular targets. But the thieves who plundered the Gardner Museum were rather indelicate, by art heist standards anyway. They cut the paintings out of their frames, and smashed the two-day gaw frames to gut their respective canvases, something that drastically lowers the value of the work. Overlooked were even more, arguably, famous paintings, such as famous works by Raphael and Botticelli. For these reasons, the FBI believes that the thieves were amateurs, which only leaves us with more questions than answers. Then there was the matter of the 1994 letter that museum director Anne Howley received. The unknown author told her that they would coordinate the return of the 13 pieces for $2.6 million. If interested, the museum would give its consent by planting a key code in the Boston Globe newspaper. Specifically, the Globe was to include the number one, as a numeral, in a business story. Though the Globe complied, it is believed that the person behind the arrangement made themselves scarce once they caught wind that the police were monitoring the situation. Such flair for the dramatic and theatrical led to further wild speculation, including that the culprits were none other than the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, trying to secure funds to release imprisoned allies. So, who really was behind the Gardner Museum heist? Well, there are, shall we say the usual suspects. First and foremost, credit must be given to author Stephen Kirkjohn, who has not only written extensively and tirelessly on the Gardner case, but actually interviewed some of the suspects I will be discussing in short. 
I would like to recommend to the Relic audience his book on the subject. It is called Master Thieves. Right after the incident occurred, the FBI naturally turned to the most prominent mafia outfits in the area, which included the East Boston Rossetti Gang. Disclaimer, I'm not blaming any particular gangs or people in this episode, just presenting research. And also, I am Italian, so please, mafia, do not come after me. At first, it was widely believed that notorious gangster and murderer Whitey Bulger was behind the theft. In fact, Director Hawley even reached out to William Bulger, the president of the state senate at the time, pleading with him to ask his brother on her behalf to possibly arrange a deal. However, it was discovered that Whitey Bulger himself was already sort of on the case, eager to catch the thieves who dared to pull a scheme of this caliber on his turf without paying him a tribute share. One suspect from the East Rossetti gang was Louis Royce, who told author Stephen Kirkjohn that not only had he devised the heist, but he was waiting for his cut from the operation as well. Royce claimed to hold the Gardner Museum in high regard from an early age, and had first-hand experience in infiltrating the building. He would often sneak in and hide overnight there as a kid. Though this would have given Royce the experience, it is now believed this was nothing more than a boast. Interestingly enough, Royce did end up going to jail for being the brains behind a startlingly similar crime, involving thieves dressed as fake policemen. So this rules out one gangster, but what about a known art thief? Miles J. Connor Jr. is a colorful character, and though I do not condone thievery, he is probably one of the cooler ex-cons out there. Known for his rock and roll singing, cocaine dealing, and heists, disguised as a police officer, I should add, he has since done his time, which may have been commuted due to his inside knowledge of the art criminal world. In 1975, he helped arrange the return of a Rembrandt to its rightful owner. In exchange, he was given a lighter sentence. Connor Jr., of course, had a solid alibi the night of the Gardner heist. He was in Lompoc Federal Prison in California. Connor Jr. was still widely considered a top suspect for orchestrating the heist, something he staunchly refutes, as he would have chosen to take the more famous paintings, such as Botticelli's Rape of Europa, a very prominent piece. I imagine for an expert cat burglar like Connor, such accusations would be taken as an insult. Clearly, whoever did the job lacked true finesse and a discerning eye. Connor claims that he knows, quote, emphatically, and beyond any doubt, who stole the priceless masterpieces from the Gardner Museum. He fingers two perpetrators, a gangster named Bobby Donati, and a dubious arts dealer named, and I promise I didn't make this up, William P. Youngsworth III. Remember that Rembrandt I just mentioned, the one that Connor effectively used to shave off jail time? Turns out, Youngsworth stole the painting in his youth to help get Connor out of jail, or so he says. Youngsworth had once been somewhat of a fledgling apprentice under Connor, or at least he studied karate with him. Again, not making this up. Connor and Youngsworth had a falling out after Connor claims his would-be pupil embezzled $2 million of antiques in Connor's possession. One might imagine that Connor was just eager to throw him under the bus. But there is a solid reason to believe that Youngsworth, if he did not commit the heist himself, certainly attempted to profit from it. One day in 1997, Youngsworth took Boston Herald reporter Tom Mashberg to a dark warehouse in Brooklyn, New York, which already sounds like a scene from a noir movie, if you ask me. 
There, Mashberg says, Youngsworth took out a flashlight and shined it on a painting that was either a well-done forgery of The Storm on the Sea of Galilee or the genuine article. Furthermore, Youngsworth provided Mashberg with actual paint chips for professional analysis. Solid proof. Potentially. Analysis was, frustratingly, inconclusive, only showing that the paint chips were authentically from the era in which Storm of the Sea of Galilee was painted. Regardless, the FBI dropped Youngsworth as a lead. This despite the fact that he disclosed the identity of the two thieves, one of which was later corroborated by Connor. In 1974, Connor claims he did in fact case the Gardner Museum, meaning he did on-the-ground research for the purpose of robbing the place at a later date. Accompanying him was gangster Bobby Donati. Connor told investigators that he dropped the plan for the Gardner Museum as a target in favor for the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, which is why he believes Bobby Donati used the idea nearly 15 years later specifically to secure a ransom for Connor's release from prison. This was told to Connor, allegedly, by another suspect named David Houghton, who had visited the aging gentleman thief in prison. Houghton, Youngsworth has said, had done double duty in the heist as a getaway driver. When you combine testimonies, they strongly suggest that Houghton and Donati were those two false police officers who robbed the museum that winter night in 1990. Of course, we only have the word of thieves to go by. Another theory posits that Donati used the money to secure the release of an allied mobster, Vincent Ferreira, one of the kingpins of the Boston underworld. Ferreira had been sent into jail for murder in 1992. An anonymous informant told author Stephen Kirkjohn that he had witnessed an exchange between Donati and Ferreira, where Donati admitted the heist to the mob boss. Bobby Donati was even rumored to have been spotted at a mafia-friendly club shortly after the Gardner heist with a paper bag containing, shocker, police uniforms inside. Whether or not Donati was one of the two thieves who stole the paintings that night, we will never know for sure. He was murdered in 1991, likely by a rival gang who had bad blood with Vincent Ferreira. Houghton died not too long after, from natural causes, in 1992. The FBI had long considered another suspect, Robert the Cook Gentile. Bobby the Cook earned his unusual moniker from his time working as a chef for the Wise Guys. In 2010, the FBI received a tip from the widow of a Boston mobster and a close friend of Gentile, claiming to have seen the Cook in possession of the two missing Gardner paintings sometime in the late 90s to mid-2000s. Furthermore, the FBI asserts that they have secret recordings of the cook alleging that he had, quote, access to the missing paintings. In trying to clear his name, Gentile took a polygraph test. The result? A more than 99% chance that he was not telling the truth about his knowledge of the stolen artwork. Since that fateful night in 1990, the FBI has raided Gentile's home twice on different charges in search of the stolen paintings. Though a false door and concealed hiding space was discovered on a drug raid, no evidence has turned up. However, Gentile is linked to Vincent Ferreira, and much like the theories surrounding Bobby Donati, he may have tried to use the paintings as leverage to get certain parties out of prison. Stephen Kirkjohn even tried to set up a meeting between Ferreira and Gentile to see if the latter had any information on the whereabouts of the stolen paintings. Now, this isn't the tallest order, as the statute of limitations on the theft have actually expired. Now, this is important to note. Only persons caught trying to sell the paintings for profit could be tried at this point. 
To this day, Gentile continues to deny any involvement or knowledge of the heist. He is currently serving a sentence for selling a gun to a hitman, and at 81 years old, his health is in decline. Whatever secrets he's keeping, they may in fact die with him. As of 2018, the FBI has formally announced that it will no longer seek the arrest or subsequent prosecution of the parties involved with the heist. Regardless, uncovering the identity of those two thieves is unlikely to happen anytime soon. It has since been reported by the Boston Globe that the evidence, including the handcuffs and duct tape used to tie up the night watchmen that evening, have gone missing. It is also worth noting that, in March of 2015, 25 years after the heist, the FBI concluded that they had secured the identities of the perpetrators, but would not release the names to the public. They said that the two men involved in the crime were now deceased. Does this confirm how in Indonati were the two thieves dressed as policemen that cold night in 1990? If you were to go to the Gardner Museum today, you might notice something unusual as you enter certain rooms. Hanging next to some of the most famous works of art in the world are empty frames. Per the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, the museum now offers a reward of $5 million for information leading directly to the recovery of all 13 works of art in good condition. The Gardner Museum theft remains an active and ongoing investigation. In cooperation with the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office, the Gardner Director of Security follows all leads. Quote, we remain optimistic that the art will be recovered. The empty frames serve as both reminders of our loss and the placeholders for their return. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks and or the investigation should contact the museum directly at 617-278-5114 or theft at gardnermuseum.org. Complete confidentiality is guaranteed. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. You can connect with me at Lost Treasure Pod on Twitter. Our website is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. If you like this episode, you can leave a five-star rating and review for Relic in iTunes. Next time. The green hills of Offaly County, Ireland are soaked with blood. It is here that Lep Castle casts a long shadow over the landscape. Hidden within is the treasure of a mad warlord, whose ghost is said to haunt the grounds of the castle. It is not alone. The adventure continues. At first, it was widely believed that notorious gangster and murderer Whitey Bulger was behind the theft. Is it Bulger or Bulger? Didn't my favorite murder have this problem? The FBI received a tip from the widow of a Bobston, a Bobston mobster. 